the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Welcome to JJ, the JJ Dylan podcast. This is episode one, a preview, so to speak. We have a lot of great things to talk to you about. And of course, the star of the show is the greatest manager of all time. He's worked behind the scenes in the WWF, WCW, Championship Wrestling from Florida and everywhere in between. He is, of course, JJ Dylan. JJ, what is going on in your world? Well, first of all, I'm flattered by the introduction, but um, you know, when you talk about the greatest manager in the world, I acquiesce to Bobby the Brain Heenan. I, I look at <laughs> I look at I, I look at Bobby as the uh, as the person who uh, you know set the bar, and then you know that's what I strive to try to get to the same level that that Bobby did, and and you know, and I also you know going back. You know, Bobby Davis, when he was with uh, Buddy Rogers and Bob Orton, that's when I first got interested in wrestling. And, and of course, uh, sadly, a lot of times our history is not preserved. And Bobby, uh, Bobby Davis, uh, from that era, really was one of the great managers as well. Now, I, I am JP, John Paz. I will be joining you every week as JJ's co-host, kind of bringing you down the road and bringing you through all of JJ's travels. Of course, JJ, you welcoming being back into the podcast world. And I feel like you're one of those guys who've been everywhere. You've seen everything. You've done everything. You worked in all the major promotions. You worked for all, all the big names, Vince, Eric Bischoff, I mean, so Dusty Rhodes, so on and so forth. So you need to get those stories out there. And I feel like me being an historian, I feel like JJ Dillon is the perfect person to have a show and the perfect guy to get those stories out for not only you know the last 10 years but 20 years 30 years 40 years 50 years even oh my god now you're giving my age age away (laughs) no no even dating back 60 years yeah i've been very very uh very fortunate i i i you know fell in love actually what happened was i was born and raised in trenton new jersey and like most uh uh, young guys that age, uh, I, you know, baseball was big for me. Uh, and it was the era where the, uh, Dodgers were still in Brooklyn. The giants were, uh, still in, uh, in New York and of course the Yankees. And in 1958, uh, the Dodgers moved to LA and the, the giants moved to San Francisco. 
course, the Yankees uh, still remained here. And it was uh, at a time prior to the Internet. And, uh, um, you know, I remember following the, my beloved Dodgers and I would get up and get the morning paper and uh, they would go to press about, the, 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 you know, their deadline was like third inning in the West Coast game. And so I would just have a like a very partial line score through about three innings, and and you know it just uh, it was hard to keep the the interest level the, the the same. So that's when I right about the time where um, you know I'd always enjoyed wrestling, but I really gravitated you know the majority of my interest to uh, to to wrestling uh, as a result of that situation, and then of course. You know, things fell in place for me, uh, you know, from that time forward. And, you know, I look back now and it's I can't believe how long it's been. And, um, you know, that uh, I've got two Hall of Fame rings. And back then, Hall of Fame was baseball Cooperstown. <laughs> was no Hall yep. of Fame wrestling. Yep. So uh, for me to uh, be part of the WWE Hall of Fame, which in Miami, uh, the horsemen were, were inducted. And then the following year, there is actually a pro wrestling Hall of Fame that started in uh, Albany, New York, and uh, they they have a process where they, um, you know, select uh, people for consideration, and they have a a, a body of uh, voters that includes you know former wrestlers, historians, and, and what have you. And so the year after I was inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame, I was also inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. So I'm the proud recipient of two hall of fame plaques and uh two gold rings and then you know that uh to me you know validates everything that i that i did over all those years uh and, you know and it's just the old saying that you know if you love what you're doing you never work a day in your life so in terms of working for the you know like you say i i i worked for uh, uh vince mcmahon i was a vice president of talent relations for seven, almost eight years, and then went to, to Ted Turner and uh, held a, a, a similar position there. So, uh, and prior to that, in the old territory days, before it got down to just the two major players, um, I, I wrestled and actually physically wrestled. I had over 3,200 matches over a 20-year period and, and wrestled in most of the major territories. And um, made like, uh, I think last count was like 15 trips to Japan, anywhere from a week on a tour to as much as six weeks, uh, all of which I did with Giant Baba and All Japan Wrestling. And then uh, went to Australia and, and wrestled there for a year uh, while living there and, uh, you know, did a, a side tour on the way in for a month in uh, New Zealand and, and on the way back. And then I've also had an opportunity in, uh, to go to to, uh, to Europe, which is a whole a, a different you know approach, a different style of wrestling. Where uh, I, I went to work for Otto Vance in in, uh, in Bremen, Germany, and over there they uh, they have a round system. So that took some you know adjustment to you know here we we think of psychology and and where you you're not constrained by. Uh, a time limit, and if you have rounds, you got a three-minute or five-minute, whatever it is, and then you got a thirty-second or a minute uh, a break, and so it's like not not that it's impossible, 
it's just a matter of you know adjusting your your thought pro uh, excuse me your thought process so I, i've had a chance to pretty much do it all thank goodness and it's going to be awesome for me i've been a wrestling fan for over 30 years so it's going to be awesome for me to kind of take this journey with you and for instance you, you mentioned japan and giant baba when we get to that which are you know several weeks away but when we get to that that's going to be not just one little story i'm sure we're going to be able to break that off into a million stories because you have so many stories and getting to talk to you a little bit off air you have so many stories it's crazy i mean i, I can mention one little name to you and boom you have a whole story about him yeah i'm fortunate because i did uh you know travel uh globally uh you know, not only in the South Pacific with uh, Japan. I never went to uh, uh, to Singapore up that way, but I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in uh, Australia and also uh, some tours in New Zealand when Steve Ricard was uh, promoting there. And then um, I think I was actually keeping track at some point, just that more out of curiosity. And I think I actually physically wrestled in 44 of the of the 52 states. Um, not all of Canada, but a good part of Canada and down in the Caribbean. And of course I always wanted to go to Europe. I never, never really wrestled in England, but, uh, I, I did have a chance to go for one of the tournaments uh, in Germany with Otto Vance, which was, uh, uh, a unique experience, uh, just because of the round system, which, uh, you know, we're so used to here, uh, setting up a, a pace, and everybody's got their own pace, their own their own way of doing it, and you have to recalibrate your whole thinking when you're talking about the round system because if it's a three or five minute round and then the bell stops and there's a thirty second or a minute rest period and then you start back, so the approach has to be uh, entirely different. Yeah, and I feel like with you, I mean that obviously will be a complete episode or maybe even a couple episodes. But with you, I mean, there's so many interesting topics. And just to kind of start it off and just kind of go in different directions, we're going to try to focus on one topic if we can. I know we're kind of going to branch off and get into other topics, but try to focus on one topic on each episode. And even eventually down the road, we're going to have some guests join us. And I know we talked about this yesterday. Arn Anderson, I talked to him today. He's very interested. He will be joining the show in a couple of weeks. He's very, very interested in coming on. Obviously, he's very busy. He's got his own show now, and he's got AEW going on. I talked to Tully Blanchard. He was very excited you're coming back to do a podcast. So we got a lot of guys interested in, in coming on, a lot of friends of yours, JJ. Yeah. Well, you know, Tully and Arn are, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, people that are icons in the business, I mean, they're and, – and, you know, I always thought that the Ole and and, uh, and Gene Anderson were as great a tag team as maybe I ever saw. And then being around Tully and Arn as a tag team for as long as uh, as I was, uh, boy, if I had to to say, well, which is the greatest tag team of all? I you know, I'd have a hard time picking. And then during that era, being around the the Midnight Express with uh, uh, Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton with uh, with Jim Cornette, so you know you do. You, you talked earlier about greatest managers and uh, you, 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 everybody would have an opinion. Well, who's the greatest? You know, you, you could ask 10 people and 10, 10 people might give, all give you a different answer as to who they thought the greatest manager of all was, uh, you know, going back to, uh, um, you know, Bobby Davis back when I first started watching when he was managing uh, uh, 
Buddy Rogers and Bobby Orton, you know, on through, uh, you know, Jim Cornette and, uh, and a, a guy that, uh, uh, Gary Hart, who never gets the, uh, mainstream press, uh, like he should deserve, like he really deserves because, um, he never had a run on the big stage. And by that, I mean, I'm talking about the, the, you know, the New York territories that got more, uh, global exposure, but in terms of, uh, uh, great managers, uh, I'd go so far as to say, I don't think there were any better than, uh, than the playboy Gary Hart. Yeah. He basically, I mean, obviously world-class and so many different territories, but as far as major runs, he just had a small run in WCW and they, I mean, he managed Muda for a little bit and Buzz Sawyer, but they never really gave him you know, a long extended period where he was in the main event or had a main event player the whole time. I mean, this is Muda coming up. This is Buzz Sawyer kind of, uh, um, you know, in the mid card. And they basically were using them as, as leverage for the horseman turning heel, basically. So they weren't really using Gary Hart to his full potential while he was in WWE. I mean, he did manage Terry Funk for a little bit in the main event, but it was only for a short period of time. Well, Gary Hart, too, was from the Dallas area, and he, uh, I think Fritz von Erich had a lot to do with uh, always trying to, to create a, uh, a scenario where Gary, Gary was essential and that he couldn't leave, that he needed him, uh, because he was a, a big part of the success over uh, a, a period of time in Texas, and uh and so he, he he could stay there, and which is basically what he did, and uh, never really got uh, because you had San Antonio, you had Dallas, and a lot of times uh, it was a unique situation when you went there that you wanted to be figured in with uh, with Fritz for uh, Dallas and Fort Worth for the the two major towns. And then Joe Blanchard was promoting San Antonio and uh, Corpus Christi. So you wanted to, you were hoping that because in San Antonio, they produced their own TV, too. So you wanted to be part of that and be figured in. And then really the uh, the third piece of that was uh, was Paul Bosch in Houston. And, uh, you know, if you ask anybody from that era uh, about, you know, who they if they had a magic <laughs> Uh, one and who and could choose who they wanted to work for. Most of them would want to work for uh, Paul Bosch uh, or for uh, Sam Mustick in St. Louis. They were the two quote unquote quote premier uh, promoters. So I was fortunate that when I went in there, um, I went in there with uh, Archie Goldie, the Mongolian snapper, who I hadn't really. In my first five years, I was a full time active wrestler and hadn't. You know, living my dream and hadn't thought about really the managerial side of it. And it was only, and I, I had, um, uh, I'd had a great run out of, I spent two years in Charlotte and then, which was mid card. And I had some main events in small towns. And then from there, uh, the people up in the Canadian Maritimes had a chance to see me and they brought me up there for, which was a seasonal thing through the summer. And that's really where I got my break. And uh, what they would do was bring back the quote-unquote stars from prior years, of which Archie was one. So I got I had like a three-week program with Stomper, 
And then I went from there to uh, to Amarillo for a year, and and then from there to Florida, which was always um, you know high on my bucket list to go to Florida and work for Eddie Graham, that uh, had the reputation in the industry as being the, uh, a genius when it came to uh, crowd psychology and what have you, and just you know of of, of finishes to matches, and so I was really looking forward to that, and and had the uh, good fortune to uh have a great run and 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 i was told by i when i started jim crockett senior was still alive and i spent like over two years there and it was a big enough territory that you know guys like johnny weaver and what have you could stay there and do well financially and never have to leave there and i remember uh weaver was was friends with uh, the Cormier family with Leo Burke and uh, and so they wanted to bring him up to the Maritimes and gave him gave him uh, star treatment brought him up there and he was featured in main events and he was scheduled to John was scheduled to go back up there for like a week and one of the premier guys in Charlotte got hurt and was going to be out I mean injured to the point where he, he couldn't work and was going to be off for a week and it happened to coincide with the week that Weaver was booked to go to the Maritimes. Well, John, you know, understood that, you know, my, uh, yes, I committed to going up there, but the situation here changed and he had a loyalty to Jim Crockett senior that he couldn't very well leave, go up to the Maritimes where he was going to do well for the week. And knowing that he was the ideal person because he wasn't booked that week and, already uh, in the in the uh, in the Carolinas and he was the logical guy to go in there and uh, you know as a replacement the fans would be uh, thrilled that he hadn't been advertised and would be there so um, that created an opportunity for me because when he he had to stay there uh, Weaver did and you know he didn't want to leave the people hanging up in uh, Leo Burke and and the people up in the in the Maritimes and I had uh, traveled a lot with John and worked with John, and he became, uh, he and, and uh, Art Nelson and some of, the, some of the, the guys in Charlotte really took me under their wings and, and really groomed me and really helped my, my career. And uh, Jim Crockett one time, you know, when I was going to, uh, to go up in place of Weaver, uh, for the week, I didn't have, <laughs> I remember the ticket was like $660 to go up to uh, Halifax and I, I didn't have an extra $660 saved in the bank. And Weaver told me, um, Mr. Crockett said he would like to have a conversation with you. So you go in the office and talk to him. So I went in and, and, uh, Jim was, uh, he was, his he, office was above his home on Moorhead street. It was the third floor level and you had a, you could park in the back and it was separate from his, uh, his residence. And you would have to go up this long three story stairway to get up to the top level where you would have an entrance to go in where his, uh, his office was. And I, I remember he had this huge mahogany desk and he reminded me of, uh, maybe a lot of people, but Burl Ives. He was a, just, a um, somebody who, the, 
was treated with such reverence there in the Carolinas. You know, they used to talk about George Harris bringing in a dozen donuts every day for Mr. Crockett. I mean, he, he was Mr. Crockett. And that's how, how much, uh, uh, and, they, and that was throughout, not just wrestling there, but it, the, the Crockett family uh, was one of the old original founding families in, in, in Charlotte. So Jim Crockett, aside from his success in the wrestling business was, um, you know, he was the, the head guy of the Crockett family and it was a big deal in, in Charlotte. So I, re- I remember when I was growing up, I had to replace Weaver and didn't have the money. And he told me to go in and see Jim. And I remember going into his office and, uh, he, he said, well, I, you know, I understand that, the, you know, we need to keep John here. And he, you know, he doesn't want to, uh, leave those people hanging up there because they've been good to him too. So we asked him to handpick somebody that he thought could go up there and and would do a good job so that at the end of the week they would feel that they didn't get shortchanged. And he said, John, John selected you. And I said, oh, wow. Uh, you know, I was just, uh, you know, just, wow. I thought, <laughs> and then I said, but, you know, I don't have money for a ticket to go up there. And he said, I, I understand how much is the ticket, $600. And he pulled out a lot of, lot of money out of his pocket. And on the table, he counted uh, 100 then 100 then 100 all across the table until he had $600 there. It was 660 something like that. It was an odd number. And he said, you take this and you go and buy your ticket. And when you get up there, they will reimburse you for the cost of the ticket. And then when you get back, you come in and see me and you can repay me. Wow. So, okay. So that's, that's what I did. And I went up there and made a favorable impression on them that they then, uh, with that first week said, well, we know we're a seasonal territory for the summer. So God, we, you know, we know that you're there in Charlotte and you're not going anywhere, but we're talking about almost a, you know, in a year from now, we would love to have you come up here and uh, and be a featured performer for our summer season, and I thought, well, you know, well, I, I, you know, I made a, a good enough impression on them that they, because each year they had to, to search for somebody to come up there, and you know, they had, uh, you know, Carl Krupp was there, and uh, and they just had guys that were, you know, were already stars in the business or became stars as a result of that ex- exposure up there for and for them to to put me in that category and want me to come back the following year was uh you know really a humbling experience for me and knowing that I could go back there and just at all, at all things all fell in place for me absolutely and that is going to be a definite maybe a couple parter episode as far as time in the Maritimes, the time up in Canada, some Leo Burke stories, who I know is a good friend of yours, and we'll definitely get into that. Now, as far as kind of this first episode, this this uh, preview, so to speak, but really the first episode we're recording here, I wanted to just talk about a topic that is not really just out of random, but it, it, is, it is just going to kind of be scattered. It's not going to be something that it's in order or it goes by a certain timeline or something like that. I just feel like we can kind of skip around and do some major uh, points in your career. And I think something that is not as talked about as much, but I think it's just a great topic to talk to you about in your career 
is the WWF in 1996. And I'm talking about when you're on your way out of the WWF and you're exiting the WWF. So this kind of episode, I just want to talk about, you know, we can go for however long, you know, you wanted to talk about it and, and we can kind of go wherever you want to go with it. But it's basically JJ leaves the WWF in 1996. Basically at this point, you had worked there for seven years, almost eight years. What do you remember about the exit? Uh, I mean, the nature of the business is that unless you're somebody like, uh, uh, <laughs> like Johnny Weaver that basically spent his whole career in Charlotte or Bulldog Bob Brown that was able, uh, in the Kansas city territory with work in St. Louis to be, and, you know, he became kind of the adopted guy or uh, Ricky Romero and Amarillo who, you know, had been a success in other territories but then went went to Amarillo and basically, uh, you know, just stayed there and continued to, uh, you know, have star status. So, you know, I knew I had a track record of, of, uh, you know, moving around. I didn't, I, a lot of guys would go and stay, you know, three, four months. And if you had a family and were on the road and this is back when they had like maybe 25 regional territories around the country. And if you had a family and you would come in, there's a, an initial period where, because you didn't have a national cable television yet at that point, and each, each of those little territories was a fiefdom unto itself that produced their own TV. So you would go in there and you, you would basically be someone that, that the people in that territory didn't know weren't familiar with so you had a clean slate in terms of okay what do I do to get over and I was not I was never the biggest or the best I didn't have the 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 bodybuilder body but in the ring I I looked bigger than I was because of my height and my main thing was that I got I could talk and mm-hmm. that yep. uh, that was my saving grace that and, and as a result of that, I didn't, if you're, um, uh, let's say if you're an Abdullah butcher, you can come in the first week and they could send you out there and you could clean house and stab people. And, and in a week or two, uh, you know, you're already over big time. And then, but also your, your longevity is also somewhat constrained by the fact that your style doesn't lead itself to be able to stay there forever. So for me, I, I would come in and it would take me a little bit longer to get over because, like you say, I, I didn't wear gaudy robes. I, uh, my style was, um, God, it, it just, it, everybody's style was different and my style worked for me. And uh, I, it, I would grow on the people and I had great success doing that way. In other words, being myself, don't go out there and try and be something that you're not. And uh, the, the the upside was that doing it that way took you a little bit longer to get over. But then once you got over, you were able to stay over and stay there for a longer period of time. And that was kind of IMO for me. I, I didn't have to move around. You know, some guys, like I say, three, four months had to move on. And I would come in. took me a little while to get over. And if, especially if you... You know, in those days, uh, 
you know, you're an independent contractor, so, um, you know, you move into a territory and usually there was a hub base and, you know, like the Amarillo territory was Amarillo itself. And so you'd move, go to Amarillo and you'd I'd find an apartment and you got to sign a lease and, and, um, know that if you, and because of the getting over part of the process, you know, initially you're not going to make the big money until you get over. And then it, once you get over, you want to be able to stay there as long as you can to, to maximize, uh, you know, what you did to get over. And then the tricky part of it is, okay, I don't want to stay here. I don't, it's not like I want, I don't want to ride the horse until the horse's legs give out and he falls and I fall with him. Uh, you wanted to, to know when was the time to, um, have an exit strategy so that you could leave and still be, uh, a main event status knowing that you could come back and do it all over again. And that was basically my game plan that really worked well for me. And you think about as far as you as, as an executive in 89, you, you basically, you know, you end up with WWF, you leave Crockett, you end up going to Vince. And it's one of those things where your longevity in Crockett seemed like it was a while, but you actually, they, you know, spend more time with Vince in the executive role. Were you used to being in the executive role and doing the behind the scenes job like that? Because WWF, like you said, they brought you in and you mentioned before seven or eight years as the vice president of talent relations. That's something you were used to from Dusty, from Eddie Graham and from your time in Crockett. Well, what what happened to me was when I went to Charlotte and actually got my break in the business wrestling. Now I'm it's the first time I'm living my dream where I'm a full time professional wrestler, you know, wrestling six, seven days a week. I was three or four months for my 28th birthday. I wasn't a kid. Mm. And so just. Father Time was always, you know, just one step behind me that I, I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to have, I, I want to have longevity in this business because I love the business. So that's what motivated me right from day one, even in Charlotte, to focus. A lot of guys just looked at their individual career and a lot of times just their, even their own individual match without regard to what other matches were on the card or. Uh, everything was focused on them on, on, on a, their event on any given night. And I realized that if I was going to have longevity in the business, I had to look beyond just my performance. Cause again, like I said, I was almost 28 years old when I started. So yep. father time was going to catch up with me. And if I was going to stay in the business, I had to broaden my, uh, you know, my area of expertise. And so I'm right from day one when I would do TV. Yes. TV was what got you over so that, uh, you know, that you could continue to do well in any given territory, but I wasn't just doing TV to get over. I was watching how the TV was structured, you know, how the program was put together, how the matches in that one hour were set out to, to get, you know, to hold the audience for an hour. I, I became really a student of the, of the profession right from the time that I came to Charlotte. And when I moved to, to the next territory, then each territory had their own way of doing things. Like, uh, 
just trying to draw a contrast. If you went to Florida, Eddie Graham had the reputation of, you know, being surrounded by the Jack Briscoes and the guys that had a- amateur credentials, um, Hiro Matsuda, guys that, uh, yes, there is the the showbiz aspect of it, and you have to, you know, you that that's a part of it. But Eddie really focused a lot of attention on the credibility of don't let it become just show business. The other end of the, uh, of the spectrum was like Nick Goulas in Tennessee, or even probably a better example would be the Sheik Eddie Farhat in, uh, in Michigan and Ohio. I mean, Sheik was wild, balls to the wall, wild, throwing fire and doing, you know, just, it was, it was still it said wrestling on the marquee out front, but wrestling had a, a, a broad, uh, reference in terms of you know what is wrestling well wrestling in florida if you went to to the sheik in detroit and it said wrestling and if you had two television sets and you're looking at them and you say well this is both wrestling yep <laughs> but wrestling in florida the fans are educated one way the fan the fans in uh, in michigan are educated a, a totally different way and of course that all changed uh with uh, the advent of cable television because then the, the, the local shows that were uh, produced in Florida that were so different from what the television show was in Detroit, now you, you start with a show that's going national that uh, really, that, that end, ended the, uh, that was the beginning of the end of, of your, uh, your territory days. Because now they're seeing the, the fans, and and also with supply and demand, that if I'm in in um, in Amarillo every week, or if I'm in uh, uh, Detroit every week, the cable television was produced somewhere else, and wrestling fans uh, watch wrestling, and which you, I, I mean we would see it. Even with uh, business would be good in Detroit or business would be good in Florida or whatever. But the fans would often come to the promoter and say, when are we going to see somebody new? They always, they were happy with what they were seeing, excited with what they're seeing. But they're also looking for, where's that next star? When are we going to see somebody new? (coughs) Excuse me. And um, So... You know, that that was a big part of the business, too, that you, you and, and like I say, some guys had a, a shelf life that they'd come in three, four months, they'd be worn out, and they, you know, they had to get an apartment, and if they had kids in school, and then they had to up and move on. And I never wanted to get into that position, and so my my style was, was a foundation of wrestling, um, and because I put so much emphasis on my interviews that enabled me to be different than other people and to give me longevity. And then, you know, the, the, the part in the ring, uh, I took pride in, uh, you know, with, with what talent God gave me for my size to go out there and, uh, and be able to perform and go to a territory and be able to stay there for a year. And, and then knowing when was the time to move out. So, and Amarillo was a great example. I go in there and I stayed for a year. My first time in there, Dick Murdoch was, you know, Dickie, God bless him, uh, was the local guy. 
and he, God, he was, uh, he was a couple inches taller than me. If I'm, if I'm 230, he's 260, 265. I'm the heel and he's the baby face. So something, what's wrong with that picture? And, but he made me and, and I would do things to him and, and I would hear the stories which Dickie, you know, he, he, it's never like he didn't flaunt it or, or, but I didn't go to the bars because I wasn't a tough guy. What image you saw on television was one thing, but I never got full of uh, my own publicity where I would go to a bar and get challenged to get my, my butt kicked. Because the minute that happened, might as well pack my bags and leave. Um, the aura of whatever J.J. Dillon was is, is now lost in that situation. So I didn't go to those places. I stayed away. And Murdoch, I used to hear the stories of, you know, Murdoch, that was his thing. He would go hang out at the Honky Tonks and, and they drove a pickup truck and chewed tobacco and hung it out in the Honky Tonks. And, and the local people would say, because Murdoch, again, was bigger than me in size and in weight. And they would say to God, he said, I, I, I look at Dylan and I think, man, I, I think maybe I might have a, a shot at beating him. And boy, he, but he kicks your ass. <laughs> 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 and, and Dickie didn't smile when they said that. <laughs> they said, oh, so now what are you telling me? That I'm not such a tough guy because yeah, he gets yep. the best of me. Well, guess what? Boom! <laughs> he would knock him out in the bars. <laughs> and so he he perpetuated my reputation with me out ever having to get out there and get, get involved in that. I love that. And I also love that you're kind of ahead of the curve as far as you're already thinking with your mind. It just shows you how smart you were and still obviously still are. But you're always thinking with your mind. You're thinking, I don't know how long physically I I could do it, but if I get into an executive role, if I get into behind the scenes, if I'm paying attention to not just my match, but all the matches, I'm going to learn more, I'm going to develop myself more, and I'm going to be able to work here for longer than most of these guys. Like you said, like maybe a Dickie Murdoch beating himself up at the bar. He's beating up, obviously he's beating up other people, but you know, he's beating up his body. He's drinking a lot. He's not going to end up being an executive and somebody that's going to be there for the long term. Is that always a goal of yours? Long term in the business? Stay as long as you can, make as much money as you can and become an executive? Absolutely. Because I, I have a, uh, a college degree. (laughs) I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I, I have a degree and, um, my interviews, you know, I learned a lot from watching Bachwinkle that uh, interviews, anybody in an interview can yell and scream and insult people. And I got so much more mileage out of, uh, I never wanted to run the people down who were buying the tickets to see me because if I was in their shoes, it would leave a bad taste in my mouth. So what I would do instead of making light of the people sitting in the front row of ringside every week in Amarillo by how they dressed or if they had a chaw of tobacco or whatever the thing was, I would transfer that to how I would talk about Dick Murdoch. I'd say, ah, Dick Murdoch, can you imagine riding down in that pickup truck with the window down and 
hooey out the window and all hmm. that tobacco juice dried up along the side. Oh, <laughs> in New Jersey, if he came through town like that, they would give him a ticket. They would impound the vehicle and run him out of town. In other words, I, I would, would put that down, but it would be directed right at Dick Murdoch. And the fans would say, and maybe they didn't even consciously draw the, you know, connect the dots that way, but they, they it's like, I'm putting Dickie down, but Dickie's one of them. So I, I don't think they ever sat and, and, and looked at it that way, but I was putting them down by putting Dickie down, who I openly would say he was one of you. <laughs> and, hmm. and, I'm, and I'm better than, I'm better than he is which was my way of saying I'm better than you are. Right. You know, I'm more educated, yep. more sophisticated. You know, I don't chew tobacco and I don't, you know, it's a, it, and so it's human nature. If somebody, uh, you know, is comes across as an elitist that's trying to tell you that they're better than you are, eh, easy not to warm up to somebody like that and to, to develop a, a, a tremendous dislike. And that was basically my formula. It was just that simple. I love it. And you're kind of a mastermind, so to speak. And sometimes uh, even way too smart for the crowds to get. But I love how, you know, you're always using the mind and you're always thinking ahead. Now, how do you kind of get into the executive role? Like, let's say when you first started now, maybe with an, as an Eddie Graham, like, how does he kind of just develop that trust? He sees how into all the matches you are. He sees, you know, you wanting to learn more or how does, you know, how does, uh, J.J. Dillon kind of get uh, not only his trust, but his respect where he's thinking, okay, I'm Eddie Graham. I trust J.J. Dillon. I'm going to make him a part of my backstage team. Well, it, the the promoters, you know, basically, I, I, I never looked at just my match or I looked at the roster and looking at how the matches were structured. Who went out first and why were they on first? And in a perfect scenario, the first match is you don't want them out on the floor fighting and going out, you know, you want the first, you know, the first match, you want two guys who can go out there and wrestle and establish kind of a theme for the night and never have to leave the ring. Certainly never middle the referee because you middle the referee for the, for the very first match. Where, where are you going to go from there? By the time you get to the main event, then if somebody else has to, well, I have to top what they did. I have to top what they did. By the time the main event gets out there, they've seen it all. So in terms of, of a, a successful promotion, you have to stay on top of it that you, that you have to, you don't want the guys to think that I've got to go out there and do it all in the first match. And, and, and there's ways that you can, Tell them, compliment them on how great to go out there. And God, you have such skills that you didn't have to go out on the floor and do something. You got your heat in the ring or, or you, you made that baby face. And when he came back, boy, they were going crazy. So it's like every match has its, has its role. And in a perfect scenario, you're building, you're building momentum with each match so that when you get up to the intermission and they come back, Usually, you wanted a uh, you know uh, an interesting match going into the mission, and then you come back usually a lot of with a tag match or something. It was going to be a lot of action, but in the 
through that whole process, you're saving things for the main event to do that they have not seen earlier that night. So they, they go out there and makes the main event special. And you only learn that by watching, observing, and listening. You know, instead of like, uh, you know, having my match quick in a shower, get dressed, and go out because you want to see, you know, if there's any cute girls there that night or what. If you're into your business, you watch the match and you see what, and especially it's important for the later matches. And I've seen situations where they go out there and the, the first three matches all work a headlock. And by the time the main event goes out there, the last thing you want them to do is work a headlock. Mm-hmm. They, they've seen that already. But you don't, you don't process that unless you observe what's going on. And that's just a small example of how, because I was 28 years old, close to 28 years old when I broke into the business, Father Time wasn't on my side. If I was going to have longevity, I had to look at the big picture, how that card was put together, looking at the television, how the television show was produced, the good and the bad, and everyone was different. And I, it's like you would get an education from each place. And, of course, going working for Eddie Graham, to me, was like uh, going to grad school because <laughs> he, he just – he had such a handle on crowd psychology and on the business. And, um, you know, that was my goal was eventually go to Florida to work for Eddie Graham. Because um, to me, he was like my my Ph.D. professor. And I, I, I wanted to be around him and just absorb knowledge. Cause, and I would watch him, like in Tampa, the they had two dressing rooms. You come up the stairs in Tampa, and there was a railing up there. And the first door, the heels went in, and the baby faces went down the hallway and into another door down over there. But there was catacombs in the middle, in, inside where both could get access together. And especially with a main event match, you know, they, you wanted everything to be right. You have a great house. You don't want to lose that momentum. And so... I would watch, and if I wasn't in the main event that night, and I would watch two guys, four guys, whatever it was, sitting in a circle, and and Eddie would be just watching, and he would let them, well, because a lot of times is everybody knew where they had to go from there. In other words, what, this is what we need to build on for next week, whether we're specifically in the match or build something that if it's not met next week, we're we're – we're in the thought process for the week after we're planting a seed and guys would sit there and I would, I would watch Eddie and there'd be like four of them. If there was a card table, they're playing cards. That would be the scenario, but they weren't playing cards. It's just four chairs. And the guys, um, you know, would start out with just the, you know, what, what if we did this? And then somebody would say, well, you know, we could do this. We could do that. And Eddie would watch. And I would watch him on his folding chair and he would inch, he would, he would come forward two inches and he's got his head cocked and he's listening and he would let them take the conversation, uh, as far as, as like their ability and experience would allow them to take it. And they would think that they were on the right path and where they were going 
to, to come back or, you know, for next week or the week after, or say we can go from here and we could do this on television to, to uh, take the next step and then come back in the arena and take the next step in the arena. And Eddie would watch. And Eddie would move forward. And Eddie was never one to, he wouldn't put anybody down. He would, he would listen and he would he'd just he'd be leaning forward and he'd ease forward and he'd, and it's next thing you know he's he's there listening for as part of the conversation but not saying anything mm-hmm. and then he would uh, he had he was so smooth because he didn't want to, he didn't want to uh, dampen their enthusiasm the last thing he was going to say was I think you guys are going the whole wrong direction even if he was thinking that he would very subtly come out of left field and plant a seed and then very subtly take the whole thing out to left field to work the next thing. And the guys wouldn't, wouldn't even realize what Eddie had done. And that's why I had, why he was a true genius. He had a seventh grade education, but Eddie Graham was a PhD in our business and he was a genius and he would, he would, and then he would give one little thing, and a lot of times the guys with experience would take that little thing and then enhance on it so that it wouldn't be Eddie coming in and just taking what they had done and scrap it and give them a whole new thing. He, he, he just, he was so good at, at a, a lot of times you could uh, plant a seed with somebody and then they take it and then where they end up at the end of the line they're convinced that this was their idea <laughs> all along. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Eddie's yep. just sitting there and he, Eddie didn't need to say, God, you guys aren't that smart. You know, I'm glad I was able to help you. you know, no, no, no. Eddie was as smooth as they got. He, he, cause he owned the territory. He, he wanted to see everybody be successful. And that's one. And, and he knew the personalities. He knew who he had to be a little bit more aggressive with and a more, more obvious to get their attention and others, he could just subtly plant a seed and then watch how it went. And then if he had to kind of nudge it back on course, he would do that too. Uh, God, I, I loved being around Eddie Graham. He was, he had the reputation of being a genius and, uh, that the, he affect, he affected the careers of, uh, Bill Watts of Dusty Rhodes. They were all products of the Eddie Graham school of education. And boy, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be there and be under the learning tree. And uh, like I say, he had more um, greater influence on me than anybody else in the business. Definitely known as one of the geniuses of wrestling. Such a great territory down in Florida. Yeah. Built it and up I so think, well. and, and I think Eddie, because I was a little bit older, I wasn't like a you know a, a young kid, and Eddie could. St- could tell where my heart was and he finally as part of my uh, uh, as part of my education and part of my growth on Friday nights they would run to, you know major towns all weekend and on Friday night they ran two towns they would run uh, uh, Tallahassee and they would run Fort Lauderdale well Mike Graham had a, a lady friend down in Fort Lauderdale that he wanted to be in Fort Lauderdale every week. Hmm. 
It was a little bit longer trip up over by the Panhandle to Tallahassee. And so I was in Tallahassee every week and was featured because I was there every week. And Eddie would, when going over what, what we were going to do that night for finishes on the card, Eddie, Eddie would then had me call him and we would talk about where we were going next week and what we were doing. And he, he would guide me. He would be like, a uh, he would guide me. I don't know how else to put it. And then finally, Eddie would say, he, he finally one day said, you know, he said, and you could see growth and that's good for business. And it's also good for my self-esteem. And I, a lot of it was a result of the help that I got from Eddie. And finally, Eddie said, he said, you know, uh, I'd like to come up to, to, uh, to Tallahassee on a Friday. And, and, you know, and he ended up pushing me as a, as a, a top guy there because I was there every week. And he said, uh, I'd like to come up. And what do you think about work? I work us, you and I work in a three week program. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do I think about it? Mm-hmm. What I think it. about it, commit to coming before you think about it, and change your mind. God, yes, please. And so now Eddie's up in the town. And again, that was like the next step up in my learning curve. And I, and, uh, you know, he, we worked out the three week thing and at the end of it, you know, because Eddie was Eddie and was over so big, he didn't work that much anymore, but he was like, a, uh, it was like Babe Ruth, the baseball, you know, he, Eddie Graham was Eddie. And so obviously at the end of the three week program, Eddie had to get his hand raised somehow, but then got his hand raised and then got laid out on a stretcher after. And I got my heat back because he, he understood the big picture. I love that man, and I and I miss miss him terrible. He uh, had a tremendous impact on on me and my career, and and me as a person. And as far as Eddie Graham and Dusty, obviously Dusty was kind of one of his proteges as well. And you and Dusty become kind of attached to the hip for a long time, as far as Florida, and then Crockett, and then eventually even the WWF. Yeah, and and I mean Dusty has passed on, and I I I'm I'm Eddie would come to me and he would say, Dusty is box office in in the Tampa territory, but if left to his own devices, he will self destruct. Hmm. Wow. It, it, in other words, he he can't help himself. Because too much would would it would start to work the other way. So in other words, it, Eddie was telling me in a way. I don't know way. I had an office and and I had a there was a, a big desk and there was a little lounge, one lounge chair in the corner and then there was like a hallway maybe ten twelve feet long and then a doorway down there and it was just a small office and, and Eddie would come in. And he would plop down on that lounge chair, and I would just—I didn't—I—I I would 
tried not to say anything so that he had to talk and and I could have the benefit of whatever he was thinking that day. Mm-hmm. And he just, and he had told me, he said, uh, that, that Dusty was a great, great talent. And just the box office records that he has in Florida. But, but sometimes great talent need to be managed too. And of course, a lot of times those guys get to the point where well, they want to be bookers. They want to be the, the the architect of their own destiny, and that that's when sometimes things can go the other way. So, and I learned this from Eddie, and he he said, I when the timing was right, I would want Dusty to be there. He would he would jumpstart my business. We'd have a hell of a run, and then. Before Dusty, when he it would happen without him realizing what was happened, if we didn't do something, it would all it's like kind of kind of going up. You reach that plateau, you ever, and then all of a sudden it's it's there's a, there's got to be a downside to everything. So what what Vince would do, and you know, and he shared this with me, and I and it just was between him and I. He would say, "I realize that." That uh, I need to get Dusty out. I need to, uh, so that before he that self-destruct uh, thing happens. So Eddie had a, a great relationship with Vince Senior, who would uh, live up and he actually lived close to where I live now in uh, uh, in, in Delaware for the uh, for the summer months. And in the winter months, he would go down to Fort Lauderdale where the warm weather. And so, uh, I don't know where I was going, my train of thought. But, but anyway, uh, he, he would, when, when he realized that, that, that too much of Dusty was not a good thing either, then Vince could, you know, Dusty, Eddie could call Vince and say, um, you know, I think you, Eddie had a way of doing it where it's okay. I've had Dusty, I had a hell of a run with him, but I don't want him to, I don't want him to be overexposed here. And I, I want to send him somewhere where I know that he's going to be looked after. And this was probably an initial conversation. And so Vince knew exactly what, what was, what the story was. So it's okay. Eddie is telling me. There's a time now where Dusty, you know, it, it's going to be better for Dusty and better for the Florida Territory to get Dusty out for a little bit. And I wanted him to go somewhere where he's going to make money, be taken care of, and where Eddie had a relationship with uh, uh, with Vince Senior, so that they would already know in advance when the time was right for Dusty to come back to Florida. And so he would tell Dusty, he said, oh, man, Vince is down a little bit. And, boy, he, you know, he, he, he didn't call me and ask me, but, you know, you're the one guy that could go up there and, and just explode that garden, and they need some help. So now it's like it almost becomes Eddie talking to Dusty in a way where Dusty's feeling really good about himself because – He's saying Vince needs help, and I'm the one guy that can help him. 
And Eddie's going to say, it's okay for me to go up there knowing that I'm going to come back here. So he, and they mm. would they would be like ping-ponging back and forth. He would go up there and have a hell of a run in New York. And before he would, uh, you know, burn out so that he could come back and have another run, then, you know, it's like, hey, God, things are down, Dusty. God, I need you. I got to, I need you. And that, and Dusty would feed off of that. Yeah. That's it's so great because you can use them in New York as a feature for a small period of time and then bring them yep. back fresh to yep. Florida again. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that Eddie trusted you with this information because you never know. You tell one of the boys and all of a sudden they're going to try to take Dusty's spot and maybe kill Dusty's ego and say, oh, Dusty, you ain't the star you think you are and things like that. But he trusted you enough to know that you, first of all, would know exactly what he meant. And then second of all, he knew that you weren't going to say anything to Dusty. Like, oh, we're sending you up there because we're, you know, we're getting tired of you down here. You know, something like that where it would ruffle feathers. Yeah, that wasn't my, that wasn't my MO and, and my relationship with, the, with, with Eddie. And, and what happened, too, was I wanted to work for Eddie. And, again, everything that happens in your career is part of your, your, your education, like taking classes, you know, and you, you know, you got to take certain classes along the way to, to, to build your foundation. And so, uh, you know, with Eddie, uh, you know, I wanted to learn from him, which I did. And he, he, he was a great, great, uh, judge of, of, of character of an individual. And he sh had showed me such great respect and guided me and protected me from making mistakes or doing something or getting off on the wrong thing. And my personality was such that it wasn't like it went to my head and it's like, well, I don't need Eddie's help anymore. I got this all figured out. And Eddie... I think uh, respected that, and we never had this in a conversational way, but Eddie respected that's how I was because I demonstrated it with how I ran my business and everything that I did. So Eddie didn't feel uh, vulnerable. He knew that he could help guide me and that I would never uh, take offense that that, oh, I can figure this out myself. I don't need your help. No, no, no. That, that, you know, what that wasn't that way. And so, uh, that was the reason I had such a great re re relationship and such a, a longevity with Eddie. But it was. And I love how we can just kind of talk about one topic and then and go into Eddie Graham and go into Florida and talk about all these awesome things throughout wrestling history with you. And which what we're going to do each and every week on the show. I mean, we're just going to delve deeper and deeper into topics. And like I said, we're, we're just we're kind of talking about you wrestler into the executive role. And I feel like this is a good stopping point because then next week we can really kind of launch and go even deeper into you becoming the executive with Vince and, and going into 89 go into 96 and kind of talk about the WWF days and going into Vince, because all this leads into you working for 
or the biggest promoter ever in the history of the business, Vince McMahon Jr. Yep. So yep. I think this is all great. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to not only stories about you and Vince Jr., but that kind of triangle of terror that you always hear about. And not really terror. It's actually a triangle of, of geniuses, really. You, Vince, and Pat Patterson together working. Yeah. And how that relationship was basically so key and so huge. And that's when wrestling was huge. You had those yeah. three major guys, you, Vince, and Pat. One quick story before we uh, yes. you know, wrap up yep. the session. It was like Eddie... <laughs> I used to treasure those moments where Eddie came into my office, not because he it was it wasn't like he made a, had a purpose in coming in, and he would plop down in that chair and you know we could talk about the Tampa matches that week or where we we're going the following week or what we we're going to do in TV and the uh, one week it was just a general conversation and I, I looked at Eddie and I said. You know, it just, it doesn't seem that long ago when a young kid in Trenton, New Jersey used to go up to Madison Square Garden in New York and watch Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham. I can't tell you how many times I sat out there in the audience and watched you. And of course, Jerry Graham with a cigar and interviews was the flamboyant one. And Eddie was just there, very stoic and very quiet. And then as I got more involved in my career, I come to find out, you know, that, that, yeah, Jerry Graham is a bit of a goofball, but the guy standing behind him that you'd never hear anything from is a true genius. <laughs> and hmm. uh, so it, I just, I, I, and you, you hear it. And then I, I knew from Eddie, so Eddie, the one day, when he came into my office and I don't even know what tr triggered the conversation. We were just, we were just talking to Scott Eddie. I sit here and I look at you and I think, man, it wasn't that many years ago that I'm sitting in Trenton and going to the garden and watching you and Dr. Jerry Graham and, and with Rocco and Perez and just the sold out garden with all the atmosphere in New York city. And, and dreaming that, God, maybe someday I, too, could become a professional wrestler. And, you know, if you're going to dream, then I, too, might someday step through those ropes in, in Madison Square Garden. But at that point, I was in Florida uh, wrestling some, but not full-time. More of a manager at that point. And I said that. He said, and I guess, you know, I never worked in New York Territory. So that that dream, if you want to call it a dream, never never came to fruition, and uh, now I'm a little bit older and 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 a different phase of the business, and and so uh, yeah, it wasn't like I was. Uh, it was I was it was kind of like, God, that was a moment in time that God I. I dreamed that maybe someday it would happen and it didn't. And I'm okay with that without saying it that way. And I, I think Eddie said, he said, ah, yeah. He said, work in the garden. That would have meant something to you, wouldn't it? And yeah, it really would have. And then there was no, there was no uh, purpose in him making that comment. And, and, and how I replied. So Eddie left and I'm back to my, to my work. And, 
a day or two goes by, and Eddie comes to my office again, and he said, uh, and I had like a big monthly calendar that I could flip up, and then I, I had my own little my book with all my cards and everything in it, and, you know what we drew and all this. Stuff. And then he said, "Go ahead to." It was like uh, the date was April twenty third of nineteen eighty six or eighty four. I can't see from here. Eighty four, I want to say, and. He comes in, and, and I was working in the office, and he said, go through your, and he, we were going ahead like a month, and he said, he said, Monday, April 24th, you know, they would run West Palm Beach, and he said, put a circle around that date and put a note to make sure that you don't book yourself. Hmm. <laughs> Where's this conversation going? Where's he going with this? Yeah, and... He then said, you're going to fly up to New York that day. You're going to be in the garden. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, uh, even after all these years, it's uh, like emotional thinking about it. And it's, it's like if somebody said you had a dream, and it's a dream that uh, will, will now never come true, but I'm okay with it. And then all of a sudden, here's a, the, 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 the fairy godfather that's there with a the magic wand that just looks at you and says, going to New York on that day. <laughs> and he said, I called Senior, because Senior would be in Fort Lauderdale for the winter. And he said, and, and Senior remembered me because I started refereeing my second year of college. And in Pennsylvania and worked all the big shows. And Vince Sr. would come uh, to the arena or convention hall in Philadelphia for the big shows. So he got to know me on a first, you know, he, call, he used to call me Jimmy. Got to know me on a first name basis. And so when Eddie called him and told this story, <laughs> shared this story with it, with uh, with Vince about Eddie's conversation with me and about the garden and that, uh, you know, I had been there and thought about it and said, oh, it probably never happened. And, and, uh, senior said to Eddie, he said, we, we got to take care of this. We got to make it happen. And so he said, we'll fly him up to New York on that, that Monday. He'll work the garden. Uh, He's, we're flying him up for just one day, and he'll come back the next day. So he won't, you know, he just have one day where he's, uh, uh, you know, not not there because he works for you in, in the office, and and you know, you need him to be there. But that one day, and Eddie's. So Eddie told me that, and it was like, it's like, am I dreaming this? Is this conversation real? I'm pinching myself. And he said, Yeah, I talked to Vince, and Vince. So oh, Jimmy, oh, he's such a wonderful guy, and and I think I thought the world of him. We we need to make this happen. And how many people could say that that the conversation with Eddie Graham wasn't to plant a seed for something to happen? It was just a casual conversation. Eddie calls Vince. Vince says, "Oh, I remember Jimmy. What a nice guy. He's such a credit to the business, and I'm so happy that he's down there and doing well for you." And 
didn't realize that uh, you know it would have meant a lot to him in that garden. So we 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 needed to make this happen. <laughs> and and he said, all right, well we we won't book him here for that day. And then uh, said, well we'll uh, give him a plane ticket, fly him up here, put him up in the hotel, and he'll work the garden, and we'll fly him back. And when Eddie told me, and I I said, well. It was a done deal. It wasn't like Eddie was the one saying, you're not booked here that day. You're there. And and it's like Eddie booked me. We had a conversation with Vince. And Vince was happy to do it because I had gained his respect and, and he respected me. And, and, and it wasn't a matter of flying somebody up for one expense for somebody that wasn't like going to be a, a big deal on the card that day. They were doing it for altogether different reasons. It's because this is something they always dreamed of doing and we want to make it happen. And then he said he's got the day off and Vince said, well, I'll fly him up. We'll put him up in a hotel. He'll work the garden and fly back. And it was just that simple. And I got up there that day and I have the, uh, the program insert uh, from the garden on that day. And um, the, the main events that day were was uh, – uh, was Sergeant Slaughter against uh, the Iron Sheik was the main event in the garden of that show. Greg DeHammer Valentine against Bob Backlund. Tito, Tito Santana was supposed to be against one of the Samoans in a single match. There was a six-man match with Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, and uh, David Schultz. And they were against... Uh, uh, the, the, the Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, and uh, Ivan Putsky. Brian Blair was on the card, uh, and they had a they had a girls match, and they and then at the bottom they and also and just my name was listed like a couple guys that were also mm -hmm. on the card. And then when I got up there that day, they were taping for the Garden Network. They say, well, you know, we want to put you and. You know, put you in uh, in an intercontinental title match with uh, with Greg uh, Valentine, and I'd worked with uh, uh, or with Tito Santana, and I'd worked with. I think Tito had his first match with me when he came out of West Texas State, and I was, you know, on top of Amarillo and and working in the office, and and so that's how far back I went with him, and it was like wow, so obviously a great comfort level there. I, I was I remember. Because I wasn't wrestling every night, I thought, here's my dream come true. I'm in Madison Square Garden. And if I had a magic wand, I could go back in time where I was working every night and then put myself here. But I can't do that. And I was my worst fear was to go out there and, uh, you know, embarrass myself. by Here I am finally in the garden and I don't have a good match. You know, whether, whether I'm not in shape or whatever. So I, I worked with Tito. I remember we went eight or nine minutes and uh, Tito went over and, and <clears throat> Pat Patterson and Gorilla Monsoon were doing the commentary at ringside because they, they were on the Madison Square Garden Network. So I actually have a tape of that match. And, and I knew Monsoon from way back when and I knew Pat, but their audience had no idea who I was in New York City. 
So there was they, there really wasn't a whole lot to talk to about in, the, in terms of the match itself, because to their audience in New York, they didn't really know me. I was there only because Vince McMahon wanted me to be there to make my dream come true. And so the in the commentary they talk a lot about Tito, and then they talk about whatever else was going on, and and uh, didn't make too much reference to the mechanics of the match. But so it's like, hey, once again, you know, I. I have been so blessed in my career that at that time, if I had thought, you know, I, I just thought well, I dreamed of being in the garden and later in my career, I'm, I'm more manager in, in, in Florida, probably never happened. And Eddie Graham calls Vince McMahon. We're going to make it happen. They've paid to fly me up there and work the garden. You know, I wasn't like a big star being flown in for a big. I mean, they they just went to the expense to get it up there because they they wanted me to be able to to live my dream. Wow, that is awesome, and thank you for sharing that because I could tell you get an emotional from it. It's just Eddie Graham did such a nice thing. Vince did such a nice thing. Awesome story, and I love that. You know, they they made your dream come true just for no other reason that they they liked you enough for them to let your dreams happen. Yep. And they had the power to do it. And, it, you know, it didn't detract from the card. But it was also, a, a, you know, a plane ticket up from Tampa to New York and a, and a hotel room for somebody that if they were having to justify the expense, uh, you know, why are we flying this guy up here? <laughs> but they, they, were the power, <laughs> they were the powers to be. And they wanted me to be there. And, and uh, I guess it speaks for the level of respect uh, that I had in the business, which was a, a cumulative thing for my whole career. And because of that respect, Eddie Graham called Vince and wanted to make my dream come true. And they did. I love it. And it's such a great story. And it's just a taste, just a tip of the iceberg. As far as this journey down wrestling's past with you, JJ Dillon on the JJ show just basically called just JJ, but uh, for for sake of the show, we'll say it's the JJ Dillon podcast. And this is really just a awesome trip down memory lane. It's only the beginning as we will delve deep into more and more topics as we go, you know, further along. And obviously, as the weeks and months come, we'll get into even deeper, deeper topics. So, of course, I just want to say, you know, upcoming episodes we'll delve into like i said to wwf the entering wwf exiting wf we'll have some interviews we'll arn and tully have expressed interest so of course being friends of yours and uh, me knowing them quite well we're going to make that happen so they'll definitely be and maybe some other surprise guests down the road really look, really look forward to that i'm looking forward to that as well because anytime you get some horseman business going on <laughs> I'm, I'm all in on that i know that and it's amazing to me that the Horseman was, I, I think it was 88, 98, 08, 18, uh, 30, 30, like th over 30 years since that Horseman phenomena. And it wasn't like it was, uh, you know, like a creative idea that somebody had. Oh, we're going to take these four guys together, put them together. We're going to call them the Four Horsemen. And it was just a time in the business where, and this happens where everything that sometimes in the business where you think you have the best talent, best ideas, you do something and boy, it just falls flat in his face and you can't explain why. And then there's another time where 
that same group of guys and everything you do turns to gold. <laughs> you can't, you, you can't do anything wrong. And, uh, it just was that, that era in the eighties was, uh, I, you know, again, Dusty went to Charlotte and completely turned that territory around and just, uh, set it on fire. And, and the level of talent that was in the, in the business, because I don't care how great you are as an individual, whether it's a Dusty Rhodes or whoever that's, there has to be somebody on the other side of the ring that the fans want to see and are willing to buy a ticket to see the confrontation between those two individuals. So at that point, the depth of the, of the talent was such that, uh, again, I was so lucky just to be the right place, the right time and to be a part of it. Absolutely love it. And can't wait to get into that and take that trip and take that journey for sure. Now, as far as plugs and different things, right now we're in the midst of setting up a new pro wrestling key store. It'll be up very soon for JJ. So please just keep your eyes and ears open for that. Uh, we will be posting it on social media and everywhere as soon as that. That J.J. Dillon t-shirt store is back up. It'll be a brand new one. Also, we are setting up a Patreon page where you can basically become a patron and help support the show and help support J.J. And, of course, please check out J.J.'s website. That is jjdillon.com. And I can't kind of stress this enough. Go on there and get J.J.'s book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. That is one of the biggest and best wrestling books that you could find out there got to stress that again that's jj's book wrestlers are like seagulls you can get that at jjdillon.com and of course you can always email us set up a new email account jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com we'll accept questions comments whatever you have to say about jj so the email once again is jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com and And if you want to follow us that's most important to me because you know we had a, a a great uh launch today i i feel very comfortable uh uh, talking with you and uh, but I want this to be a show for the fans yep. and, and so those emails and comments and when I say comments I don't I I don't want you to just think oh we got to repraise on them no I, I'm just as interested in, in constructive criticism say you know I wish you know whatever whatever your criticism is I want to hear it because I want this show to be the best it could be for you and for me. And I, w- I want you to, because uh, uh, I am a storyteller and I've been fortunate to have traveled all over the world and had a lengthy career. I got two Hall of Fame rings and and it's, it, it, it's I, like I say, I was never the biggest or the best, but I just was so fortunate that, that fans took to me and uh, everything that I have in the way of, of, material possessions and two hall of fame rings is because not because I was the biggest and best because I wasn't just because you, the fans saw something in me that you could relate to and you supported me. And that was the only reason that I had any level of success was the support that you gave me. And so I always conclude every interview by uh, saying thank you as always to the fans. And of course, as well as the email address, you could always hit us up on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip, and we'll, we'll respond. We're quite uh, easy to kind of get a hold of. And any questions, comments, or concerns you have, obviously, you can hit us up there as well. But definitely encourage some questions over at JJ Dillon Podcast at gmail.com. 
anything, any topic, we will discuss it on the show. That is for sure. And JJ, it is quite an honor to be a part of this launch with you and you to be joining the TMPT empire, so to speak, and be joining our stable of podcasts because when you have a stable of podcasts, you need a manager, you need a leader, and there ain't <laughs> nobody better than J.J. Dillon. Thank you. I appreciate that comment. I really do. All right, J.J., this will be where we're kind of headed towards the exit. So, fans, thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us again next week for the J.J. Dillon Podcast. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.